Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I am this podcast host, Trace Blackmore. And folks, how did you celebrate last week, Industrial Water Week? How cool was that? We had an episode each and every day. People were hashtagging Industrial Water Week, IWW20. We were sharing photos. It was awesome. So I know we're all going to be going through scaling up H2O withdrawal for the next couple of weeks because we had an episode each and every day. And folks, I got to tell you, my hat is off to those podcasters out there that do a daily show. That is a lot of work. And because of that, I want to give special thanks to my team here at the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And that, of course, is Lauren, Danielle, and Sean, the unsung heroes of the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Of course, you get to hear me, the host, each and every week. Well, folks, it takes a village to make this podcast. And I just introduced you to my village. Thank you for all you guys do, making sure we always hit our scheduled date of airtime. Not all podcasts can say that. Some podcasts say that they're going to deliver a brand new episode every Friday, and sometimes they miss. I'm not saying that we will never miss, but so far, we have not missed a scheduled air date. So thank you for all that you do behind the scenes. And I mentioned withdrawal before. Folks, I think we're all going through a little bit of withdrawal because we had Industrial Water Week last week. So we all got together each and every day on this podcast. And then the week before that, we had the Association of Water Technologies Conference And it just seems like we had so much stuff going on all at once. And now we're back to the regular day-to-day. And it's so easy for us to feel isolated, especially during a pandemic. And I want everybody to know out there that we are part of a community. We've been celebrating that community for the past two weeks. So when it seems like it's lonely out there, when it's just you and your windshield driving from account to account in between servicing customers, remember, you are part of the Scaling Up Nation and we understand what it is that you are going through. So know that you are probably listening to the same episode someone else is listening to out there in the water treatment community. You guys are going through the same thing and seek value in the fact that you are part of a community. And I am proud that we are all part of the Scaling Up Nation. I am proud to be the tribe leader of the Scaling Up Nation. And Nation, I want to thank you for all the things you do so we get to have have this podcast called Scaling Up H2O. I think I might have mentioned on this show once or twice that I'm a fan of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Folks, it truly is my favorite book. I read that book for the first time when I was 19 And I think it was one of the biggest gifts somebody ever gave to me because it has truly allowed me 
to have a philosophy to deal with so many things that have come up in my life and how I've dealt with things and how I've achieved things that I am, I think, the world's biggest fan of the seven habits of highly effective people. Now, I've read the book several times. I've taught the content to several people to the best of my ability, and I truly try to live the content within that book. Now, the company that produces the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, is a company called Franklin Covey. And yes, they do have other books and other programs besides The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, in fact, they've got some great programs there, but I believe they're all based in the foundation of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Well, on today's show, we have someone with us from the Franklin Covey organization, someone who actually wrote one of those other books that's not The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. His name is Chris McChesney, and Chris wrote The Four Disciplines of Execution. I know we have read so many books on planning. Well, folks, this is a great book that talks about execution. Well, that's what we are going to be talking about today. So please welcome my guest, Chris McChesney. My lab partner today is Chris McChesney of Franklin Covey. Chris, I am so excited for this interview. I am such a Franklin Covey fan. I don't know where we're going to go today in this interview, but thank you so much for coming on the show. How the heck are you? I am so good. Really good. Thank you so much. Um, and I'm excited that you've got some history with Franklin Covey. Um, this will be fun. Well, the Scaling Up Nation, the listeners of this podcast have a history, especially with The Seven Habits. It is my all-time favorite book. I had the fortune, I was introduced to that when I was 19 years old, and it really gave me a structure to build my life around. And I have spoken about The Seven Habits so many times on this show, and I've had people, I would say hundreds of people have told me that they have read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People because they were introduced to it on Scaling Up H2O. So how cool is that? I love that. That's so cool to hear that people are just discovering it right now. Um, my wife and I were introduced to this 29 years ago. We both worked uh, for Covey's organization and, and we have seven children and we're very, we're blessed with a really great family. And if people, when people talk to my wife, one of the first things she'll tell them was um, getting exposed to that material early in our marriage really made a huge difference. I tell you, I like to give the seven habits of highly effective teens uh, to young people. I mean, it is just such a great resource. But I'm sure we're going to bring seven habits in and out of this conversation. But you wrote your own book, The Four Disciplines of Execution. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into that? Yeah, the first thing is I don't write. <laughs> so I uh, I talk a lot and I'm surrounded by some very good writers. Actually, one of them was, was Stephen Covey's uh, second son, Sean Covey. Also, Jim Hewling is a brilliant writer. And there was a team of us. And uh, the best way I can explain this, there's this great quote. I got to get attribution for this. There's this great quote that says, it's better to fall in love with a problem than to fall in love with a solution. And you don't have to think about it very long to kind of get the idea. And I think we fell in love with the problem. 18 years ago, 
of how do leaders execute on a strategy that requires a high degree of human buy-in. And, you know, and, and that, that notion, that problem is driven, you know, 4,000 client engagements, 18 years of work. The book was published in, in 2012, The Four Disciplines of Execution. And we're just starting the second edition, um, which should come out next year. Uh, and so that's been, it's really consumed all of us that have been involved in that problem. And you've been doing this for 18 years, but you've been with Franklin Covey for far longer than that. Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, I think April, April, I lost track. April will either be 29 or 30 years I've been oh, with wow. I started as an unpaid intern who didn't need an internship. I, I, I made up my own internship. Nobody would hire. I, I, I literally was a stowaway for four months before they figured out that that guy that keeps showing up every day doesn't really work for us. And uh, yeah, so from those humble beginnings. Well, and I can't help but notice you only have four disciplines of execution and uh, Stephen Covey has uh, seven habits. So what happened to the other three? I, I'm reminded of this. I hope that the fact that I had seven children made up for it, but uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've always actually, I've always had a fondness for the number four, but that had nothing to do with why it shook out the way it shook out. So let's let our audience know what uh, what we're talking about when we're talking about the four disciplines of execution. We've talked a lot about the seven habits on the show. So how does that relate to the seven habits and who should be reading the four disciplines of execution? Uh, I love that question, um, I, particularly because you're comparing it to the seven habits. The, the reason that the seven habits is the best-selling self-help business book of all time is because Covey got past best practices. And what he described as principles or natural laws, Covey was a real big believer that if something isn't working for you, rather than playing the victim, you have to find out what natural law you're violating. And this, is, this drove him. And so really what you have with the seven habits are the natural laws of human effectiveness, Right. What we, if, so if the problem was human effectiveness, that's the, those are the seven basic fundamental universal laws. Well, think of execution or the four disciplines. We, we, I think we adopted that same mindset. And so we were looking for what are the basic universal laws of executing a strategy that requires human buy-in and human engagement. I mean, if a leader can just do something with the stroke of a pen, that's very different. But if it really requires a team, which in our opinion is the essence of leadership, what are the universal laws for that to actually work? And so that and the disciplines is our best take at how to apply those laws. Like we didn't invent the principles. We've just done a lot of work on how to apply them. So I'm curious, how do you boil down to all of those human interactions to just four? How, what was your research like? How did you do that? It's, it's fascinating. We actually started on the negative. And we started looking at all of the reasons that execution breaks down. And no matter what hypothesis we tested, the answer came back, that's your answer. So the answer is goal clarity. The answer is they don't care. You don't have commitment. The answer is they can't translate it to what they do. I'm saying they like the front line of the organization. The answer is that you need cross-functional collaboration. Like we had 12 root cause reasons why execution breaks down. And we just kept spinning. And so you do this long enough, certain things start to float to the surface. And 
it, it really wasn't the hard data collecting research that gave us our answer. It was trial and error with clients. And you, 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 so I'll just say what the four principles behind the disciplines are. The principles are focus, leverage, engagement, and accountability. And look, I'm not naive. I know if somebody else had done this work in a parallel universe, they might have come up with a different set or they might have called them something different. Um, but what we know is they work. Like if you think about air flight, you know, we've defined air flight around four principles, lift, thrust, weight, and drag. And then, you know, the science of, of aviation is how you apply those principles. And that was a little bit like us. At some point through trial and error, it's those four ideas just started to emerge. And then it was about, all right, how do you apply them? And what does it actually look like for a small team, for an organization? And each interaction, each client experiment, it got a little better and a little better and a little better. And there were a lot of mistakes along the way. And that's where we got where we got. 4,000 of those. <laughs> <laughs> so let's take an example. Let's say uh, you and I are working at a company. We want to launch, let's say, this new product within our company. And we have a team meeting about it. People give their input about the meeting. It seems like everybody's rallied around it. And then the time comes where everybody needs to do their jobs and it just falls apart. What happened there and what should we be doing? Yeah, so good. Okay, so like a thousand things went through my brain all at once. A great example setup. So here's the first thing I would tell you. The four disciplines of execution is heavy medicine. It's not for everything. So if you look at this and you say, hey, this product's going to launch no problem. Teams are on board. We got what we need. That's not what you use this for. It's funny. In healthcare, they talk about four disciplines. We do a lot with hospitals. And they, they refer to, to four disciplines as taking an issue to in, the intensive care unit. But if you, if you look at this and you recognize, A, it's really important that this product launches. We got a lot riding on this. This is going to, you know, this is going to impact the direction of the organization. And B, I don't think it's going to happen the way it needs to happen if we don't do something real different than what we normally do. Right? And you'd be surprised how often those two ideas intersect, right? It's it's got to happen and I don't think it's gonna. Like that's when you know, okay, that treatment First of all, anything you can buy, like stroke of the pen or mandate, and you're pretty confident it's going to happen, just do that. <laughs> Write the check. So the, fir the first thing we'd have you think about as far as, okay, now we got to actually do something, is to translate the work into the form of a target, a finish line statement. So is there, some, is there something that represents success for this product launch? Is it just the project itself? Is it just getting it out? And if so, what's the criteria for success look like? Or is there an actual tangible result that we need to see new product revenue above 15% by the end of next fiscal year? But whatever it is, don't begin work on the assumption that we all know where we're going. And so discipline one's called focus on the wildly important. And it's, it's not only about narrowing your focus, I think people get that part, but it's also a little like the way a camera focuses, brings something into focus. And that's what the idea of a target, and we're very specific that this target should have a starting line, a finish line, and a deadline. We are going to go from 7% to 15% you know, new product development revenue 
by the end of the fiscal year. Boom. Well, this sounds a lot to me like begin with the end in mind, habit two. If we can create where we're going and what it looks like when we get there, then now we know what the journey needs to be. Is, 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 am I getting the right idea? The Stephen Covey you met and I had breakfast last year. And what we talked about was the overlap between the four, the four disciplines and the first three habits of the seven habits and how the, the, the four disciplines really sort of became a way for organizations to practice habits one, two, and three. So you see a huge overlap between principles. I think you're absolutely spot on. And, and there's a little bit of a science to it because having a finish line is one thing, but what if that, and I'll, I'll stay with your example, what if that product development objective really required the interaction of half a dozen different teams, marketing and, and, and you know, product development and quality assurance and, and, and inside sales? And, you know, what if there was a whole t- group of people that had to do that? Getting the targets, and we're going to stress this way more in the second edition. It's in the first edition. But getting the targets as close to the work as possible is really critical. The adage that we use is we borrowed from NASA in 1961. What are the fewest battles necessary to win the war? Right? What are the right not what's everything that's got to happen? Like any anybody can make an exhaustive list, but can we get this idea, this 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 new product revenue success down to the fewest critical battles? And maybe those battles drop right into those subteams. Or maybe they don't. Maybe those battles are still above the functional level. And once defined, then the sub-teams start lining up to the battles. For instance, in NASA, the, the, the war, you could say, the, or we call them wildly important goals or WIGs, right? That target. The, the WIG, the big WIG, was man on the moon by the end of the decade and return them safely home. The battles were navigation, propulsion, and life support. And they had starting line, finish line deadlines on navigation, you know, propulsion. We got to get to 25,000 miles an hour, right? And life support, right? We can, right now we've got to be able to keep a human being alive in space for X number of days. Okay. Then with the battles defined and leadership really going, yeah, that's it. Like if we can win those battles, like, I think we can do this. Would you say that most of our issues are not necessarily execution issues, but it's the fact that we didn't clearly define those goals in the beginning? Wow. Let me say this. Little bit, you know, a little bit of semantics wrapped up in that answer around what you'd say is execution. Short answer would be yes. And uh, I had a chance to look at a good friend's a CEO's track record. And he was asking me for input and he had basically put failures on the left side of a piece of paper and big wins on the right over 20 year tenure as a CEO. And I didn't say it to him, but something jumped off the page. All the failures really were concepts, really compelling arguments for things the organization ought to do, but they'd never been translated into specific finish line targets. And all the ones, all of his wins had, it was, it was a really dramatic example. And I didn't say anything to him because I didn't want to put some, you know, trite idea over this man's life work. But yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, it's very difficult to execute on a concept. There's one other angle to this that we've just in the last year started to recognize. And I don't know why we're so late to the party. But when you take a big objective, when you translate things to a target, and then you break those targets down 
you're not planning. You might think you are, but it's not the same. Planning is when you start saying who's going to do what. We're going to need one of these, and we're going to need by this time, and we're going to need one of those. And, we're gonna, and at first you might say, well, isn't that the same thing as a battle? But, but not really. For instance, in a hotel, if the big goal, the big wig was guest satisfaction, the battles might include moving, you know, m- moving arrival experience and moving problem resolution and moving food and beverage quality, right? Whereas planning, right? So you broke it down into those three targets. Whereas if I was planning, I would say, okay, we want to get the, uh, we want to get a new lobby put in by this amount of time. I start telling you what to do. I move to the how. Uh, we want to get the front desk trained in some new customer satisfaction behavior. And, and there are certain things that lend themselves to just, hey, just put a plan together and let's just do the plan. But it's such a default. And what we're saying is, hang on a second. Before you just start issuing a plan for everybody's marching orders, what if you broke the problem down into sub problems, into sub targets? And, and our rule of thumb is if you can get the big wig down into a series of subwigs where each team only owns one of these, you are in a very nice position to run the four disciplines play and to get some surprisingly good results. So would you say if multiple teams, multiple departments own the same goal or issue that that is a formula for defeat? Not exactly. It's okay that they might all own going to the moon or guest satisfaction or new product revenue at a high level. But if you leave it at a high level, then yes, it is a formula for failure. Because in the, in the absence of clarity around what are we specifically going to do? What's our piece of that equation? The day job sucks everybody's attention. Because the day job always wins on the urgency scale. The day job maintaining the operation has so much built-in urgency. Even if everybody's in love with the new goal, it sucks the energy back into the day job. And I love the word that you give to the day-to-day. You call it the whirlwind. And I have adopted that word. And when you say that to people, they just get it. Yes, that's going to suck us in. And we're not going to be able to focus on anything external to that. It requires very little explanation. It's like a it's like a really aggressive virus. If you just say that word at a company meeting, like six months later, the whole company is using the term whirlwind. <laughs> that thing that thing wants a word. It really does. So let me ask you this. Let's let's take the the first discipline. So we have focus. So now we have this this issue, this thing we're trying to bring to market. How do we go about creating a clear target and how do we come up and above the day-to-day whirlwind? Yeah, I think, you know, our rule has really been, and sometimes, sometimes they don't know, like in your, in your example, you're assuming they know they've got to bring the new product to bear. That's kind of an easier one because you can either put a starting line, finish line, deadline on the actual delivery of the product, or you can put it on the results that will come once the product is delivered. Like that's not too hard. And then once you have that, you start breaking it down to targets to the team level. That's not too bad. The harder one is when a team feels like they got 20 things they should be executing on. 
Well, let's do this. Let's say, because I, I love your example about NASA, and, and I took Franklin Covey's project management uh, program, and that was the example that they used, and they started out with Kennedy's speech that we will do this by this date. So let's use that. Let's, let's restart that with the example, and, and how, how would we apply the disciplines to getting a man on the moon before the 60s ended? Love it. Okay. So let's go right to the beginning. So at the beginning, the goal was not put a man on the moon by the end of the decade and return him safely home. The goal was lead the world in space exploration. So it's important to know that everything really starts as a concept anyways. And then what NASA had done back then, which is very typical of what organizations do today, is they built 15 metrics around lead the world in space exploration. And what was going on, right? You had the Cold War, there, you know, countries were falling left and right between democracy and communism, and everybody was looking at the space race as some arena. You know, it was a bizarre wrinkle in human history, right? And Kennedy did intuitively what we try and teach leaders to do, which he just picked the finish line. Like he just made that up. It's kind of funny. The backstory is he wanted to go to Mars, and they said, look, relax, John. The moon's going to be cool, right? And he, he, just, he just picked a target, and that target probably didn't accomplish all 15 things and lead the world in space exploration. But you sit there and look at it and go, hey, we pull that off. This thing's over. And sometimes, sometimes the right answer doesn't come from analysis. Sometimes it comes from imagination. And so he draws this line in the sand, and accountability goes through the roof, right? Because you can hide behind 15 metrics. But man on the moon, by the end of the decade, return him safely home, there was nowhere to hide. And then the other thing that happens, morale and engagement skyrocketed. So there's a huge increase in accountability and morale and engagement skyrocketed. And what, what we call that is game on. Like you don't always get that. And sometimes game on doesn't happen until you're later into the process, but it's not very subjective. Like, you know, when somebody, when, when a group's gone game on, like we're in. Like that's kind of, that's really what started. So that was the first step. The second then, then they start moving towards these primary battles. There were these technological hurdles that were standing in the way and it was navigation, propulsion, and life support. And then the teams below the various functions then start lining up. There might be five teams pushing towards, I mean, there was no department of navigation. I think that's one of the mistakes we make. We, we want to instantly, we start with very vague goals and then we let functions create vague goals that sort of kind of align with our vague goal and that ain't going to cut it. Like, okay, what are the sub-targets from each, you know, of the supporting teams that are, that are going to allow us to get to 25,000 miles an hour? And what's, what's that look like? Like start to, start to break that achievement into the sub achievements. That's what discipline one's about. And when you're done with discipline one, you're really at the level where the work gets done. You can think of discipline one as the connective tissue between a strategic concept and where work gets done. Well, Chris, let me ask you this. How do you know when all the work is done in discipline one so you can move on? Yeah, great question. Hard question. We would say that you've taken your lagging measures as far down into the organization as you can. And you're now, if you break them down anymore, you're now bumping into what we call a lead measure. So you're now at the level where something can be influenced directly. 
Like if I switch to the hotel, if we go into engineering and aeronautical structures, we're going to lose. First of all, I don't know it. So let's switch to a hotel. Fair enough. If we take a, if we take arrival experience at a giant hotel, people make up their mind about a hotel in the first 10 minutes. You got a really hard time flipping them if they're not happy in the first 10 minutes. And, the, and they, they said, this is one of our key battles. And they broke arrival experience down into another set of targets. So they said, okay, room availability. Like nothing ticks people off more than they get in in the afternoon and the, there's no room for them. They're waiting on housekeeping. Room availability has got to be one of our targets. And average check-in time has to be one of our targets. And luggage delivery has to be one of our targets. Like if, if those targets can be owned by discrete independent teams, you, you know, you take, you know, you've broken this beast down kind of to the natural level. And then the next set of measures tend to be much more influenceable by the team. And that's really, you're very naturally into discipline two and discipline two says act on the lead measure. So the lead measure for luggage delivery might be, you know, we're going to, we're going to identify 100% of bags that come through that front door. Every time we got to figure out what bag belongs to what guest, we kill everybody's luggage delivery time. And we're going we're gonna to escort 50% of the guests to the room. That's our other. So you're down to the kind of stuff you can actually do. You can have direct influence on. And that actually, that's a great segue. That's the lead measure. But the key to the lead measure for us, 4,000 at-bats, don't assign lead measures to a team. Let the people doing the work pick their own bet. Let them, let them make the bet. Give them ideas. Give them your best thinking. Give them a menu. But, you know, the great quality guru, Edward Deming said, hey, the people that are within 12 feet of the work, those are the ones that actually understand cause and effect relationships. I love that. And I love that we're talking about lead and lag measures because I think it's it's just so easy for us to think about lagging measures. Most everything that becomes easy to report on is a lagging measure. What is a technique to transition off of that to really get what builds that final result, the lead measure? Yeah. So if you, in my mind, the easiest way to do this is to think about a strategic bet that's very close to the front line. Like I just said one, let's just stay with the example I just gave. We're betting that if we can identify all the bags coming in and we walk 50% of the guests to the room. Now there's 12 other things that happen. We've got a work process, but we're going to put disproportionate energy on two activities or two small controllable objectives. We're betting that if we did those two things, we're going to see a significant drop in overall average luggage delivery time. Like that bet, if you think of that bet, and I hope everybody's okay with this, if you think of that bet as a game, think of the way that a human being gets their head around a game. A whole different set of, of, of like brain fluid starts flowing. People think, oh, that won't really work. I mean, we can do that. I think that happens anyways. Like, like there's all of this creative thinking that goes into, will the lead move the lag? And that's why you've got to let the team play. That's why you've got to give them a voice in this thing. If you pick their lead measures and they don't work, they'll just say, hey, boss, it didn't work. But if they picked them and it doesn't work, they'll tweak them. They'll modify them. And a lot of times the right answer at this level has to go through a a little bit of a failure pattern. It's got to go through some iterations. And so once that thing starts to feel like a game 
And there could be many games driving one of these objectives. Then the third discipline is I got to see that game. Like it's got to go live. And the third discipline is keep a compelling scoreboard. Like, you know, you got a game when you can scoreboard it like a game, not like, you know, not like a spreadsheet, more like what you see at an athletic event. Now, let's see if we can we can explain that to the Scaling Up Nation a little bit, because you had some great slides when I saw your presentation a couple of months ago. When most people are thinking of a scoreboard, yeah, I've got an Excel spreadsheet. We look at that, but that's not really what you're talking about here. Right. If you think about, if you divide scorekeeping into two categories, coaches' scoreboards and players' scoreboards, it gets a lot easier. Like at the at halftime at a basketball game, every coach gets handed a report. And on that report is how many times did we, you know, did we get our hands on the other team? How many turnovers were there? What, what's our ratio of, uh, you know, assists to, uh, you know, missed shots, whatever. And, and they need that data and leaders need that kind of data to make business decisions. And that's not the kind of scoreboard we're talking about. What we're talking about has a lead and a lag, shots on goal, goals. Like that stuff's up in front of the, like the players can see that at all times. Down and distance score. If someone is is really bored with football as a whole, they probably, I mean, they might not like football or they more likely, they don't understand down and distance. Third and five, second and two. Like that's the, that's the lead measure of football is getting first downs. The lag is the score. And the networks know this, like the networks will show you that. Can I visually see the bet? You know, baseball, right? You know, hits and runs. Shots on goal, you know, hockey. Shots on goal, goal. Right, right. There's this, there's this sort of lead lag component that sort of sucks me into the game. What I'm doing, what I'm getting, and so any way that that can be. We've got a bunch of little twi tricks and twists. We've got an app that we use now. Um, we found that you know, highly visible to the players, and for whatever reason, the most visible place in the universe right now is a person's phone. Highly visible to the players is a big part of it. And then me, here's the other point: I got to be able to look at it. And within three seconds, know we're winning or we're losing. And you'd be surprised how many times you can look at a lot of data and go, I still don't know if we're winning or losing. And so simple, highly visible, winning or losing, that's all of that goes into creating this game on mentality. It doesn't happen. It doesn't always happen right away. But if they own the bet, oh, and here's how you know it's working. You don't have to wait for the results. All you have to do to know if it's working is just ask a team member what the score is. Because if they don't know the score, they don't care. You're in the living room with someone and you want to know if they're into the game or not. Just ask them what the score is. If they don't know, they're not into it. And they might be embarrassed about it. They might pretend they're into it. They're not into it. And what we say is start over. Like figure it out. Um, we've had shocking results. And if you, if you let them participate, if it feels important, if it feels like a high stakes game, if people are watching, if there's people in the stands, that's all you have to do. Do I buy the bet? Do I, did I get a voice in it? Do I think that it's predictive? Do I, do I think it's something I can influence? If it's a winnable game and it matters, you get human nature working for you. 
Well, let me ask, as a leader, you're trying to do all these things. You're trying to put all of this together with the team. How do you know you've gotten it right so you can try to avoid a failure? How do you know that you've gotten everybody involved? They are the right lead metrics. They're getting the right buy-in so they can report up to it and they feel good about that. How do you know all those things? I got, I'm so glad you said this because I want to take a step back. What we're talking about, folks, is not a new way to run your business. 80% of the work that will happen, please, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. 80% of the work that has to happen in your teams and in your organizations should not change at all with the adoption of this approach. If you think of it in three categories, if you put, as a leader, if you put, if you had three categories and one category was everything you could do because you're the boss. We call it stroke of the pen, boss stuff. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to hire her. We're going to outsource this. We're going to change that. So you got boss stuff, stroke of the pen. Then you have another category, which is whirlwind or in this context, life support. Think KPIs. It's everything we do every day to sustain the vital signs of the institution, right? Keep the doors open. And it's, it's your existing processes and a lot of firefighting just to keep you alive. Just those two categories right there, that's going to eat 80%. And if you ask the people, they're going to say more like 100%. But it ain't, it's 80. You can, you, can, you can steal from it. And then the third category is something that requires us to do something different. Like I, as a leader, I cannot get at this result with my checkbook. I can't, it's resistant to direct management influence. I can't push it. I got to pull it. And that's where that, that, so you use this as a treatment. And, I, and the reason I wanted to say this is I, I wanted people contextually not to try and put their whole operation in these four disciplines. You don't need that. What you need to put in the four disciplines is the key bottleneck. Like what's the thing, you know, if the genie was only given out one wish, what's the thing? Oh, if I had this, we could do so many other things. That that is when this methodology really works. You know, like for that, you know, for that front end team, like it was, it was luggage delivery or it was room availability. You know, that, that for that group, this is the one thing that's holding us back. We, and we can, we attack the bottleneck. So, so, so knowing, having that context, first of all, really helps leaders get this right. You try and eat your whole operation with four disciplines, you kill it. And then it might not work right away. Like sometimes the bet is something you know will work. We just have to focus on it and do it. And that's a type. The other type feels more like trial and error. And that's really okay. Like we don't know if, if the lead measure of tagging all the bags, identifying all the bags and walking that we don't know that that's going to reduce, but we think we're going to try it. And they got to know, you know what, in this little space, in this little sandbox, it's okay to be wrong as long as you're adapting and you're trying something new. And so the spirit of this is, and, and you know it's working if they're engaged, if they're working the problem. And that, that takes us to the fourth discipline. And the fourth discipline is if that team's meeting every week and every member of that team is saying, all right, here's the one or two things I'm going to do this week. You know what? I'm going to get us new tags for all of those bags. Um, Marty's new on second shift in the morning. I'm going to walk with Marty for two hours, make sure he's got this thing down. Um, you know, 
I'm going to, oh, second shift, Mary has been killing it. I'm going to, I'm going to acknowledge Mary with the rest of the team and give her a, a, a gift certificate. Uh, you know, anything I can do to help the bet, I'm going to make every member of the team is going to make some commitment every week to double down on the bet. Force against leverage, right? If the lead measures are the lever, we're going to put force against the leverage. And if you see this activity going on, it won't be long. They're going to, you're going to see that lag measure, that wildly important goal. You're going to see that move, the one close to the teams. All right. So let me stop. So other questions about that. Well, I've got so many questions. I don't know where to begin. I think the one that's forefront in my mind is we're learning through this entire exercise. We only know what we know right now. And as we go through it, we're going to learn new things about how we do things. So how do we take those lessons and now apply those so we're making the plan even better? I think the first thing is take a lot of pressure off yourself, right? If you, if you apply this approach to just one thing per team, that lowers the pressure. I also like thinking about how a human being learns a board game or a card game. Like nobody's very good the first round. And someone tries to explain the rules to you. Eventually you say, just start. I'll jump in. Have you ever done that? You're like, I, I hear you. I'm sure you're being very clear. I got to see it in action. Absolutely. Know exactly what you're talking about. You know exactly what I mean. And sometimes once they see it in action, about a month into it, they'll go, all right, we know what to do with this. It's not about walking the guest to the room. You know, it's what it is, is it's about getting their profile right. Or, you know, and, and they'll change the bet once they get the game. And so here's what I say. I, I really like this idea. I think this will, everyone's blood pressure, if you're trying to figure this out, everyone's blood pressure will lower when I say this. Intent counts more than technique. Not, not in engineering, not in the sciences, but with people, it totally does. And so here's the idea. If my intent is just on two things, I'll get most of the technique right. But if my intent's wrong, all the technique in the world's not going to help you. Here's the intent that we want leaders to have when they do this. A winnable game that's high stakes. Where in that, as you look at that team or collection of teams, and not everybody has to be driving towards the same big wig. Like that's a misconception people got from our first edition. We didn't mean that. But how do you want to spend that discretionary 20% of the energy? And can we get those teams focused on something that they can win at? And it's, it, and it's also high stakes because it's really going to matter to one of our big battles. We gotta have that win. And they feel like they gotta come through for us. Like if you just did that and you threw out the four disciplines, my guess is you'd do a lot of the stuff we're recommending just on your own if all you were trying to do was create a high stakes winnable game around one part of that team's function that's gonna drive strategy. There's no doubt about it. We as water treaters have our own special language. That language is demonstrated in our new very own line of water treatment specific t-shirts and accessories. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash shop to get yours today. You know, when you look at the four disciplines, focus, leverage, engagement, accountability, it, it seems simple, 
obviously it's not with all the things that that you're you're letting us know about and all the things that you're finding through your experience of 18 years a question i have for you is what is the most common stumbling point when people are trying to go through this so how can we help people that are doing this the first time yeah i love that question and if i could just add i know you love stephen r covey and seven habits and I, I, I heard Covey say once about the seven habits that you could learn the seven habits in a few minutes and you could spend your lifetime trying to master them. And I think that's, I think that's really been true for what we've seen of our clients. They've been able to put this into place really quickly. And yet some of them after 10 years feel like we're just getting good at this. So it's got, it's got part of that flavor to it. If I were to say stumbling blocks, and this is a huge topic of conversation for us right now as we're working on the second edition of the book, people instantly resonate with, like you did, with lead and lag measures, right? And they love the idea that we're going to put energy against a predictive metric. And we're not just going to spend all of our time looking at lag measures. Here's the biggest mistake. They don't break the lag measure down into small enough lag measures before switching to lead measures. Probably our fault for not emphasizing it enough in the first edition. In other words, I don't want to apply, if you think wars, war wig and battle wigs, you don't have to use military terms. I, I mean, it just works with the NASA story, but you know, primary wig and sub wigs and then team wigs, right? If you fail to do that, and by the way, this is the discipline. Discipline one's the one everybody wants to skip because everybody goes, oh, well, we know what our goals are. So we know our lag measures. What are our lead measures? Eh, you're already done. You're already, it's already over. <laughs> I can tell you eight reasons why you're going to fail right now. You got to go back to discipline one and you got to say, look, most metrics are going to live in the whirlwind. Those are KPIs. And we've got processes. We're not going to apply the, the lead measure treatment to those. But on the ones we are going to go after, we're going to break those down into the smallest achievable lag measures at the team level before we start applying lead measures. So we're not putting a lever against a gigantic boulder. We're putting it against, right? A smaller boulder, a manageable boulder that, that still is meaningful. So I, I hope that I know I'm talking in metaphors and I, I really apologize, but I hope that makes sense because that, that is definitely public enemy number one for applying this methodology. Let's just go back to the hotel example. Um, and by the way, sorry for the hotel thing, but we just found that hotels are like the Rosetta Stone of case studies. Like you don't need any backstory. Everybody knows how they work. So if the big, big boulder was guest satisfaction, I got to break in a big opera, in a small hotel, I just have to, I might just break that down to arrival experience and food and beverage quality and I'm done and room cleanliness. But in a big hotel, I got to break that down into arrival experience, which now encompasses five teams and um, food and beverage quality, which encompasses 14 restaurants and problem resolution, which gets all your other support organizations. Right. And so to move that boulder, I got to break it down another whole level. And so now we're down to the front desk team you know, trying to get rooms available and the bellmen that are trying to reduce luggage delivery time. Like it always breaks down to these little operational milestones. And if I don't do the discipline of breaking it down and you just said, you know, hey, Trace, what's your lag measure? And you said, uh, guest satisfaction, boss. And I'm like, right on. That's what we want everybody to know. 
which is so typical, right? right? And then I said, what's your lead measure? Like that sounds like an intelligent question, but there's no lead measure for you, Trace, that moves guest satisfaction for a hotel that has 1800 rooms. Like it doesn't exist. That, that, that boulder's bigger than a house. There's no lever you're going to use. We got to get you to where you can see that your lever is going to move a piece of that rock. That scaling the process and not applying it to everything is the best way to get traction with this methodology. Discipline four is accountability. And I know when you say you're going to hold somebody accountable, that has a sting, that has a negative connotation. How do we take accountability and make it a positive thing? Because we have to have it or we're not going to get where we need to be. You're asking my favorite question around discipline four. Accountability absolutely has a bad rep because we apply it to a bunch of stuff that probably where it doesn't belong. The, the short answer is we pull instead of push. So instead of me, and you know, part of the day job, part of what we do every day, I may have to be telling people what to do in, in various ways and, and assigning people to do stuff and planning and doing all that. All that's got to go on. But in this one little space, in the intensive care unit of 4DX, I'm not going to tell. I'm going to ask. It's Trace, in addition to everything that you're doing this week, which I know is massive, what's the one or two commitments you could make that would have the biggest impact on this scoreboard this week? And you report, you know, and next week when you report, you say, not against stuff you told me to do, Chris, against stuff I said I would do. That's a different kind of accountability. That's the first part. Second part is if the team owns the goal, not just the leader, and if the team came up with the lead measures, and if your other team members are kind of bought into what this is, you will not miss a commitment. Like peer accountability has a profound effect on behavior. Like we were shocked and how much stronger peer accountability is than boss accountability. And then here's the final one. As a boss, you have got to see in my eyes that I care about this. If somebody misses a commitment, I don't ever want to be rude. I don't ever want to be mean. I don't ever want to be degrading. There could be great reasons that somebody missed a commitment, but we're going to talk about it. Super nice. Hey, Trace, if you get yourself in a situation like that where you know you're going to miss one of your commitments, would you call me and I'll help? Like, that's so nice, but everybody's getting the message. Okay, this stuff matters to Chris. Like, if we say something, we got to do it. Like, I can be so nice. Good leadership, good parenting has love, but it also has high expectations. And what we found was based on how you set that, it will either feel like a high stakes game or a low stakes game. Nobody likes low stakes games. Nobody likes preseason football. Even that, I'm a diehard football fan. I can't wait for baseball to be over and for football to start. Like, and then I watch my first preseason game and five minutes in, I'm like, I can't watch this because it doesn't matter. Nobody likes a low stakes game. So that's all of those things contribute to forming a healthy type of accountability. Chris, we have done just a fantastic job, I think, of letting the nation know what the four disciplines are. And I hope everybody out there listening, whether they own a business, whether they run a territory, they're responsible for any other person in their organization, they're thinking of so many ways that they can use this. But I'm curious, you've mentioned several times that you are coming out with an updated book of the four disciplines of execution. What are some of the new items that we can look for in there? 
Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, when we launched Four Disciplines, it was like a giant sonic ping that we sent out into the universe based on 10 years of work. And then as the ping came back, we were surprised by, first of all, the biggest thing we were surprised at is that people don't read this book like a normal business book. Most normal business books, you read them and you shelve them. And we absolutely thought that 95% of the people were going to do that and 5% were going to apply it. And that wasn't, that's not what's happened. What's happened is like what you did, like you, like maybe more than half, maybe two thirds try to do it. And so that's just changed. Like to, just to know that has changed certain things. Like, like in the book, the three sections of the book, the book starts off really focused at the front team leader level. But leaders of leaders, the rules change a little bit, and we don't get into that stuff until the end, and we're going to be letting the front-level leaders know up front. We've put enormous work into an app, so very early in the book, you're going to have a place you can go to watch a video or to, or to build an online scoreboard, right? And there's just certain things we can do in an app that lends itself to someone who's trying to do more than read it. They're trying to do it. So the first thing is, really helping organizational leaders with the methodology. Number two is getting this app available very early for free, like it comes with the book, right? Getting people into some other mediums for building this out that we think will help. And then the final thing is we get to work with some really amazing leaders and you start to see some profound leadership insights when you're really trying to execute on something hard. And this work has been a really nice way to observe some, some pretty significant leadership insights from watching some, some great leaders and some great organizations struggle with this topic. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of leadership, I think, in the second edition compared to the first edition. We have a lot of listeners of this podcast that don't necessarily own their own company, but they can see where this can really help their companies. What advice do you give to them where they can go to their owners and say, you know, I just learned about this new concept. I think it can really help us do what we're trying to do. How do they have that conversation? Yeah. You, you don't have to be the owner of the organization to do this. If you've got what we usually say is if you're a leader with multiple functions or multiple teams below you that report to you, you're in a great spot to start this. If you work for a leader that's in that position, <laughs> that leader is in a great, right? You're, you might be part of that leader's team. And, and there's usually two ways that this starts. Oh, you know, I'm going to say three. One way is just they roll up their sleeves and they just dive in. They, they do the best they can. And, and that's, that's, we know there's a lot of people doing that. Some groups will engage Franklin Covey and anyone from, from our practice will come out for like, you know, up to two hours, like on our nickel, just to meet with a leadership team and knock these ideas around. Ironically, that's our lead measure. Like how many executive teams are we just talking to about this stuff? Like good things happen if we do that, right? It's a great lead measure for us. So, you know, one, take advantage of that. Um, that's a great way to get to get a leadership team to go, is this, does this a fit here? Could we, it's always pilots. Could we pilot this on something? That's a great way to get it started. So that's, that's the second way. The third way is just recently we've started doing public sessions. It's usually a university that will host us. Like we've got coming up, we've got Atlanta, Indianapolis, San Antonio, Kansas city, Tulsa, and 
This is one that I do where we'll have about 20 tables and each table is a different leadership group, plant management group, a small company, right? A division leadership of a bigger company. And we have 20 tables of leadership teams in a room and we just take them as far as we can take them in one day. And it's a, it's kind of an execution masterclass. And so we're teaching stuff. We're showing case studies. They're working at their tables. And there's a couple of us that are kind of bouncing between the tables. And we just try and get everybody in the room as far down the process as we can in one day. Over 18 years, I know you've shared this with so many organizations. I'm curious, what is your most spectacular success? Wow. Now, this is, this is something that gets talked about. Marriott's got the longest run. The number two leader at Marriott, Dave Grissom, banked you know, an enormous amount of energy 11 years ago on this methodology and has improved Marriott guest satisfaction every single year. Not the franchise side. Half of the Marriott's are, 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 are managed by Marriott. The other half are franchise. Just on the managed side, um, he has continued to move a really key target for 11 years. That's, that's, a, that's a big one. But it's, it's, I'll tell you the one that means the most to me was actually uh, in the public sector. BJ Walker, who we feature in the book, she used this methodology to go after repeat cases of child abuse. And she reduced the number of repeat cases. Nothing, there's almost nothing anybody can do about initial cases, but it shouldn't happen again. She reduced repeat cases of child abuse by 60% across the entire state of Georgia. And she's one of these leaders. She's, she's done great stuff in Illinois since Georgia. She's now in Florida. And she just goes after, she, this is the methodology she uses. And she just goes after big, big issues with this approach. And so, yeah, I, I'd have to say that's my, that's my favorite one to be associated with. That's huge. Well, now let's say somebody just joined the podcast right here at this very moment. What's the one thing you want to make sure everybody gets out of this conversation? Sometimes the most strategic thing to go after isn't your big number. It's not EBITDA. It's not, you know, revenue. It's that smaller, really key strategic objective, right? Can we get our first year business developers to pay for themselves? Can we reduce client turnover? Don't be afraid to put disproportionate amounts of energy against very tactical wins. Well, Chris, I've had a lot of fun with this. I actually want to have you back and talk about some other topics, maybe getting everybody organized and some things like that. But before we do that, I do have some lightning round questions for you. Now, the point values are doubles. So, so are you ready? <laughs> High stakes game, brother. Here we go. So you now have the ability to go back in time and talk with your former self on the first day when your book was released. What advice would you give yourself? Keep the focus small. Kind of that topic I was just telling you about. Um, don't lead people towards going too big too early. It's more important. It's more important to start getting wins. What are the last few books that you've read? Um, I went back and read Built to Last, which was Collins's, Jim Collins's first book. And um, I, I, just, I just absolutely love it. Uh, before that, if, if anybody's read uh, The Lean Startup by Eric Reese, it's a, I think it's a horribly named book and it's a brilliant book around trial and error on 
kind of on the, the, the front end of a product launch is excellent. And then um, on the fiction side, uh, my, my kids have me into this book called The Way of the Kings, which is just blowing my mind. So when my brain cannot handle any more execution, I got a great, I got a, uh, that's, a, that's just a great book that I'm into right now. That's a fun question. So Hollywood listens to Scaling Up H2O all the time. So they're, they're going to figure out that they need to make a movie about Chris McChesney. So when they do that, who plays you? Oh, uh, Jeff Goldblum. That was easy. I love it. <laughs> you know, a, a slightly younger Jeff Goldblum, maybe like from the big chill. Like that's the first time I knew. Okay. Not, not, not from whatever the commercials are that he's doing now. I, when I watched The Big Chill as a teenager, I knew I had a celebrity doppelganger, and it wasn't flattering at all, by the way. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, one final question. You now have the ability to speak with anyone throughout history. Who would it be with and why? Oh, brilliant question. My brain is just locked up. Uh, I was thinking about something like this. I was telling you about that podcast, Hardcore History. Um I think a founding father, like maybe Madison, and really understood, really try and understand how much they really knew and how much maybe they just got lucky. But like the, the method behind the madness, like, like did, they, did they really have all the insights that we give them credit for? It would be fascinating to me. And I would love to show one of those founding fathers what this nation actually turned into. Well, it would be, would be fantastic. Chris, this has been fantastic. As I mentioned before, we're definitely going to get you to come back. You are a wealth of knowledge, and I want you to pour all that knowledge all over the Scaling Up Nation. But I sincerely want to thank you for coming on Scaling Up H2O. It's absolutely been, been, been my honor, and, and, and you, you've been asking great, hard, great questions. Nation, I know I learned a lot today. I'm sure you learned a lot today. And I know many of you are thinking, I want to read this book, but you're driving. So don't take any notes. We have all this written down for you in the show notes page. In fact, if you go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash 4DX, that's the number four, D is in dog, X is an X-ray, it will send you straight to an affiliate link on Amazon so you can get this book. If you're driving and you're worried about forgetting that, don't worry about it. You can go straight to the show notes page and you can click on the link. And I know you're gonna want to read this book. It is a helpful book. It takes planning to a new dimension. It takes planning through execution so we can actually get things done. I'm always impressed when people can take a large concept idea and break it down into a manageable bite-sized piece or pieces so we can work on that concept. And that is exactly what Chris did with this book. The four disciplines of execution, once again, are focus, leverage, engagement, and accountability. And if you're a business owner, I know you can immediately see a path using these four disciplines. However, if you work for a company, maybe it's not so easy. So I want to break that down for you. Let's take a common goal that many of us have that we want to lose weight. Let's actually take those through 
the four disciplines. So the first discipline, focus. First off, don't say, I want to lose 10 pounds. Phrase it in the positive. By X date, I will be 10 pounds lighter, and the benefit is I will be able to walk upstairs without getting winded. See the difference with that as just, I want to lose 10 pounds? The brain will only engage with positive statements. There's a whole psychology on that, but for now, just know that positive statements will help you achieve that goal. Adding the goal result helps us even more. So I'm not winded going upstairs. We can visualize that. We can engage our imagination and that helps our brain make us more able to achieve that goal. And we can engage all of those things within the brain. It allows us to more easily achieve what we want to achieve. Now, the second discipline is leverage. Obviously, we have certain habits that got us 10 pounds overweight. If we do not acknowledge that, we're not going to be able to achieve that goal. So we have to ask ourselves, what are some of the things that we have to overcome? For example, when is the best time for us to work out? If the answer is at night, we don't want to schedule our workout during the morning. If we know we can't get out of bed to do it, don't set yourself up for failure by scheduling an activity you need to do to achieve your goal at a bad time. You know yourself better than anybody else, so when is the best time to set you up for success? Now let's talk a little bit about eating. So exercise and eating, those are the secret formula for those of you that don't know about losing weight. I know I tend to forget that from time to time. I know I eat better when I pre-prepare my meals the night before. Otherwise, I'm out going from account to account, talking with people, making phone calls, and now I've got to make a quick decision on how do I satisfy the fact that I am hungry. And normally those quick on-demand decisions are not great decisions. We pull through a drive-through somewhere and that's probably why we are overweight. And the reason I didn't take something in the morning is because I rush out the door in the morning. That's just something I do. I like to get to the office early and I can grab something out of the refrigerator if it's pre-prepared. But if I wait to make it in the morning, nine times out of 10, I'll convince myself I don't have time and I won't do it. And I'll come to the office and I don't have my lunch and that's where the bad decisions are made. So if we want to be successful, in this case, I'll make my meal tonight, so I will have it for tomorrow. We have to envision all these pitfalls, and if we can see them, we can avoid them before they actually happen. So let's go to the third discipline, that is engagement. And for some reason, and this kind of goes into the fourth one as well, but it is so easy for us to break our own commitments to ourselves. It's far harder for us to break a commitment with someone else. So let's take advantage with that. 
let's tell as many people as we can that are close to us what our goal is, what we're doing to try to achieve that goal, and invite them to help us keep responsible with that goal. Maybe we can even find some people that we can work out with together to continue that engagement. So, and that leads straight into the fourth discipline, which is accountability. And that's why it's easier for us to let ourselves down and harder for us to let somebody else down. We don't want others to think badly of us. We can use that for our advantage. There's scripture that talks about bringing issues out into the light because then it doesn't have power over us and then we can have others help us with that issue. By others holding us accountable, we will naturally take the commitment more seriously. So maybe the person we're working out with is our accountability partner. And we report to each other what we ate the day before, what pitfalls we're finding, how we're trying to overcome them. We're logging our workouts together. We're encouraging each other to the next level through our workouts. Folks, it's so much more fun when we're doing something with other people. And probably the most fun is when we achieve the goals, we can celebrate with each other the achieving of all the hard work that had to be done in order to achieve that goal. So I hope you see if you really want to get things done, if you really want to make a change, focus, leverage, engagement, and accountability. This is what we do each and every week in the Rising Tide Mastermind. It works, folks. It's baked right in to our format of the mastermind, and we're all holding each other accountable. We're all celebrating each other's wins. We're all making sure that the goals that we are working on are the goals we should be working on based on all the other circumstances that are taking place in all of our lives. So I hope you have a person, a group of people that you can have conversations like this with. If you don't, you are more than welcome to go on scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to see if the Rising Tide Mastermind is the right group for you. If it's not, that's okay. But folks, as you've heard me say dozens of times, life is not made to do it alone. And when you do it with people that understand the issues that you have, that is a group that can better help you. So I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope you can see where the four disciplines, focus, leverage, engagement, and accountability will help you achieve the goal that you are trying to achieve. Remember, don't just plan it, execute it. Tune in next week for another brand new episode of Scaling Up H2O. In the meantime, stay safe out there and I will see you next week, folks.
I get asked all the time, what are some of the reasons that people join the Rising Tide Mastermind? Well, here is Jill Cavano of Scranton Associates to tell you about why she joined. Why did I join the Rising Tide Mastermind? Um, <laughs> I've already told Trace this, but when he gave me a call and told me about the opportunity, I wasn't quite sure that this was something I wanted to take advantage of. I wasn't sure I was going to get my money's worth out of it, and I wasn't sure that I had the time to devote to it. Um, I actually give the credit for me joining to my accountant. My accountant said, you know, I think this is an excellent idea. You know, you only have to gain, you have nothing to lose. Um, and I couldn't agree more. I am so glad that I joined the Rising Tide Mastermind. Trace said, you know, you know, there's no minimum. He said, give it six months. Um, to really see, you know, if it's for you. And I knew after the first month or two, our group really gelled right away. You know, it was so nice being a small business owner can be very isolating. I've gotten so much out of this. I've gotten um, networking, uh, friendships. I don't feel so isolated. I've gotten a lot of knowledge and personal growth. We've read some excellent books that I've been able to apply for my business. So I'm so glad that I joined. And I guess I have to thank my accountant for doing it. It's given me more than I thought that it would. Jill, there's no doubt about it. You have a great accountant. I'm so glad you joined. You are such a great member of the Rising Tide North Star Group. And folks, we have many groups within the Rising Tide Mastermind. And all of the people that are within the group is what makes the groups great. I know if you haven't experienced a mastermind group, it's hard to comprehend all the benefits that you get from it. So I urge you to go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to read up on the Rising Tide Mastermind. And if this sounds like a group that's right for you, schedule a call with me by clicking the apply button and we can talk all about it. The Rising Tide Mastermind might be the key to get you to the next level.